0: Hello. There we go. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Eric O'Connell, and uh, I'm the youth director here at Hillside for the high school. Uh, Yeah, Daniel and Ron are both not here. So if you're new, this is not normal. I'm usually not up here, and I'm certainly usually never wearing a tie. Um, so, if you see me in the hallways, if you're new, know that I'll look much different Monday through Friday. Um, but since, you know, like Kevin said, mom and dad are gone, I'm just pretty much going to see how much I can get away with this morning. Um, so, don't tell on me. Obviously, I'm kidding. But uh, so, I wanted to share a really cool experience I got to have this weekend. Uh, this last weekend, we went on our winter retreat with the high school students to Wesley Woods. Now, I've been here for almost two years. Uh, I think next week is the week that we moved uh, here two years ago. And the last couple of years, I've been to three winter retreats since I've been here. And the first two, we went to Spring Hill camps. It's much like Grace Adventures for those that have middle school and uh, have loved Spring Hill, my experience there. Uh, they do a really good job of doing a really great program so that people like myself who are new can just build relationships. And I've got to create really amazing, close relationships with the students here because of that. Um, but last year, we, th- you know, th- they are big and, you know, they do some really good things, but one of the things that they can't because they're so large is they don't have a specific knowledge of the students that you see on the screen. They don't have, they don't know the context as well as we do. So last year we left, um, the, myself, the leaders, the students left just wanting a little bit more. Um, because it is so big, they serve a great purpose, but because it is so big, the teaching sometimes feels a little generic or a little surface level, but that's what has to happen when you have 500 students there for one weekend. So... We left, and uh, a couple of us leaders in the Grand Rapids area decided we want to do our own youth retreat, and we went to Wesley Woods. We went with three other churches. We went with Thornapple Community, RCA. We went with Cascade Fellowship, and First Cutlerville, and if you can see from this picture right there, First Cutlerville, Sandy Blacketer, if you're familiar with her, only one in the picture raising her hand, getting excited, Um, so it was a very fun weekend, but Um, It did not have all of the bells and whistles, it didn't have all the excitement that a spring hill usually would, but it was one of the most life-giving, most amazing, most restful experiences I've had in a very, very long time. I couldn't talk when I got back on Monday. I could barely walk, and I wanted to hibernate. But I felt rested. I felt inspired. And that's because we got to experience genuine, life-giving Christian community on this trip. That's what we encourage the students towards. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning. I want us to talk about... Christian community. What identifies Christian community? And more importantly, who belongs in Christian community? What are the characteristics of the community and the people in the community look like? Who's in and who's out? And we're going to start by looking at some scripture. Um, Acts 15. The words aren't going to be on screen. They're going to be pictures, but just listen, follow along. I'm going to be speaking the scripture while we look at some pictures and visualize it. Uh, Acts fifteen, one through 5 Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem and discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers when they came to Jerusalem. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. So what we have happening here, we've got Paul and Barnabas who are missionaries for the church. Okay? They're going along, doing what God, the work that God has called them to, and people it's working. <laughs> people are actually coming to the faith. Gentiles, these non-believers, are actually giving their life to Christ and saying, this is what I want to do. I'm forsaking all other gods and I'm calling Jesus Christ my Lord. And what Scripture says is it brought great joy to Paul and Barnabas. It brought great joy to all of the believers who heard about it. I want you to think for a second. What is something that gives you joy? For me, it's being able to spend time with my wife, being able to go out on date nights, strengthen our marriage, have fun with one another, create memories. I love going to things like winter retreat with high school students and losing my voice and being completely sleep deprived. It's a ton of fun. I love it. Great joy when the Raiders win. Happens very, very few times, but when it does... I'm very, very joyful about it. I want you to think for a second. What brings you great joy? What is something that gives you life? What is something that puts a smile on your face that just won't quit? And as you're thinking about that, realize that this is, that, that same feeling you're feeling is the feeling that the apostles and the, and the, the disciples and the people who were following Jesus felt as they saw people coming to Christ. And as you're thinking about the thing that brings you joy, it might be incomprehensible to you to think that someone would rain on your parade, to think that someone would want to take that away or to tell you that that joy shouldn't exist. But that's exactly what we have happening here. They come, they're bringing joy, and what ends up happening is the apostles, or the, yeah, the, the, the there's a group of Pharisees that say, hold on, it's great that they're coming to the church, that's fine, they can come in. But if they're going to stay, they have to do X, Y, and Z. They have, they're not just allowed in the club. They can come join or they can come visit, but they're not, they're not a part of it yet. They have to be circumcised. They have to keep the law of Moses. And let's see what happens next. Um, they're basically saying you can't be a Christian unless you do these things. We're going to watch a video clip of Peter's speech to them. Oh, need some sound. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and the them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice on you, that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to them. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts like they. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the nets of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? You no, know, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that <clears throat> we are saved, just as they are. It is through the grace. Of in faith of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. What I love what happens here is Peter comes in and he flips the script. Okay? He, he changes everything. He says, you've got it all backwards. Uh, what you do doesn't make you saved. It's only by your faith through grace that comes in, through Christ alone. Uh, God's grace is what saves you. And I love what Peter says about this works-based faith. He says, you're putting a neck on the disciples that no one in the history of humankind has ever been able to bear. Why do you put God to the test by putting this yoke on, giving them this work that we know is not going to work out? And for those of you who don't know what a yoke is, um, a yoke is a bar that's usually put on the necks of two animals, usually ox that, that, that... that bring a cart or whatever. I'm not a farmer. I don't know any of this stuff. I had to look it up. Um, that it does, it's, it's for work. You know, It gets behind a, a wagon something and two ox have to carry this and they usually put two so that two can go rather than one because the work of two will be much greater. But it's used for work. And what Peter is saying is by telling them that they have to do X, Y, and Z, what you're doing is you're putting one of these on their necks that feels like... Oh, whoops. There, there's the oxen. Um... You're putting a yoke on their neck that's like a thousand pounds. You're telling them to push this boulder up this cliff that we know that none of us have been able to do. Moses hasn't been able to do it. David hasn't been able to do it. None of us in this room who have met Jesus have been able to do it. Why in the world do you think that all of a sudden these new people who know nothing about the faith are going to be able to now push this boulder? Why do you think they're going to be able to take this yoke and actually make it work? to stop putting restrictions on who is welcome into our club and just rejoice that first and foremost you're in the club and that these people are coming and that we have one thing in common and that's we're in the club by God's grace alone because of our faith in him. You see, what's happening in Acts 15 is the disciples are trying to answer this question. What does it take for one to be saved? But if we tune our ears just right, we actually hear a deeper question happening. We hear, what does it take for one to belong See, Paul and Barnabas, they already know, they say, look, they're saved, we don't have to worry about it, we know that they're saved, but what they're asking truly is, what does it take for one to belong, and what, what does someone who belongs have to do, what are the characteristics, why do they belong? And this morning, what I want us to ask in light of this scripture, is what does it take for one to belong in Christian community? Who gets to belong, why do they get to belong? What are the boundary markers that we have set for those who want to enter into it? And what do I mean by boundary markers? John Orbrook writes this book, and in it he he, he talks about boundary markers. He defines them. He says, what makes something, come on. What makes something a boundary marker is it's being seized upon by the group as an opportunity to reinforce a false sense of superiority fed by the intent to exclude others. So this is what the Pharisees were doing. They were saying, look, we're going to give you these rules. You have to obey the, the law of Moses. You have to be circumcised. It fed into their false sense of we are better, and they did it with the intent to exclude the people who wouldn't do it. And he goes on to say, Religious boundary markers change from generation to generation. If you give it much thought, whether your religious background is liberal or conservative, Protestant or Catholic, you can probably come up with your own set of identity markers. A boundary-oriented approach to spirituality focuses on people's position. Are you inside or are you outside of the group? And a great deal of energy is spent clarifying what counts as a boundary marker. See, this is what the Pharisees were doing. And I want to suggest that we do this too. We don't do it as as blatantly and we're not as bold in our words as the Pharisees are. But whether or not we like to admit this, we do this as well. We create these boundary markers. We draw these lines in the sand to say, this is who gets to be in our club. This is who gets to be a part of what we're doing. And sometimes, whether or not we like to admit it, I know it's certainly true for me, it feeds into my false sense of superiority. And I think that I can exclude others because of certain Things that I do as a Christian, um, and some, so some traditional examples. And by no means, let me give a disclaimer. And by no means, this is an exhaustive list, and by no means am I saying that these are bad things. What I'm trying to communicate is, someone who wants to join our Christian community, they might l- look in from the on, they might look in from the outside and say, "This is what I have to do to be a part of this community. These are the things, these are the lines in the sand that they have drawn. These are the boundary markers that they have created." So, some traditional examples we have is read your Bible, pray, lift your hands in worship, tithe, go to church every Sunday um, on Good Friday and all those other holidays, and make sure you go on Wednesdays and Thursdays sometimes, whether it's Zumba or whether it's small group study. Um, Don't ever curse, don't ever lust, and send your kids to Christian school. Now, not bad things. In fact, if we did all of these things, I think that our communities would look fantastic. If we did all these things faithfully, all the time, our communities would look pretty stinking sweet, and I think there'd be a lot of life coming from them. Again, but these are some boundary markers that we have intentionally or unintentionally created so for that those people who are outside of the boundary marker will look in and say, what does it take for me to be a part of this community? Answering that question, they will look in and say, these are some things that I'm seeing across the board, and these are some things that I think I might need to prescribe myself to. So, Intentionally or unintentionally, this is the yoke that we place on people wanting to join, Um, but (laughs) we've communicated this is what it takes for others to belong. But in doing that, we've sometimes unintentionally attached this yoke to ourselves. We've said, these are the things that I need to do to belong to this community. These are the things that I need to do to stay in this community. In order for, me for, in order for me to feel God's grace, in order for me to feel God's love, in order for me to continue to be a part of what is going on here, I have to do these things. If I want to feel God's presence, this is what I have to do. And we see these things as a means to this end in which we become these super-Christians. Right where where people will look at us and say, they have got their stuff together. We, We do these things as a means to an end where maybe someone in the church will say, hey, I'd really like you to lead or do something like that. We want to be seen as these people who've got it all together, who really are close to Jesus. And Peter warns us about this mentality. He says, Why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? The reality is is we know what Peter is talking about here. We know what it feels like to just try harder, to just to just promise to read our Bible more, to just promise to pray more, to just promise to be better and to remain faithful within the boundary markers that we have set up. We know what that feels like and we know this heavy yoke imagery that Peter uses because sometimes we do all of these things perfectly, but we feel exhausted. We don't get the results that we desire. We don't become these super Christians that we aspire to be. We, we, we don't feel God's presence sometimes, even though we do these things faithfully, even though we do these things consistently. Again, we view these things as sometimes a means to an end. If we do these things, this is the result that I'll get. But just like Peter, what I want to suggest this morning is that we flip the script. I want to try and switch sides. I want, us to, I want to suggest that maybe these things aren't means at all. Rather, they are the ends. Rather, they are, they're, they're the result of a process and a journey that we go through. Uh, I want to suggest that our boundary markers ultimately isn't what Jesus is really concerned about all that much. Um, the yoke, the work that we assign ourselves, is not the exclusive work that Jesus calls us to. I want to suggest that Jesus is a lot more concerned and calls us to connect to him, to learn from him, and to be close to him. And he says that much in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Sometimes the yoke we place on ourselves, no one has been able to carry, no one has been able to push, the work does not get done. The yoke that Jesus offers us is easy. It gives us rest. We focus all too often on the boundaries, the things that that separate us. Right? We, we stay out on the inner circle and we make sure, that, okay, we got to make sure that these people are doing these things, make, got to make sure they don't get inside. And I think Jesus is a lot more concerned with the center. I think he's a lot more concerned with the things that make us similar, the things that make us, the things that we share. And then out of that similarity, out of that commonality, how do we love one another? How do we live in, in community with one another? I don't think he's as concerned as we are with the boundary markers. And I think Ortberg, uh, who talked about the boundary markers, affirms this. He says, Jesus consistently focused on people's center. Are they oriented and moving towards the center of spiritual life, love of God and love of people, or are they moving away from it? And this is why he shocked people by saying that many religious leaders who observed all the recognized boundary markers were in fact outside of the kingdom of God. You see, what, I think what Orberg is saying is that they were so concerned with staying on the boundary markers and saying, okay, we've got to make sure that people don't get in. These are the rules. These are the boundaries. And if people get in, we're in trouble. That in fact what they've done, and I'm not going to demonstrate it, but have gone over the boundary marker or are now outside looking in. And then what he continues to say, come on, is they were increasingly dead to love. And this is why Jesus could say that the tax collectors and the prostitutes who were a million miles away from the religious subculture and, in in essence, the boundary markers, but who had turned, converted, and oriented themselves towards God and love were already in the kingdom. So we've got the people who are making sure that the boundary markers are being kept safe and they're trying to say, let's get all these people out. Meanwhile, they've got their backs turned to the people who are a lot less concerned with what they need to do to be in the kingdom of God and are just so much more focused on who they are in relation to Christ. They're so much more focused on just learning and resting and being close to Christ. And Jesus' invitation to us is not just to be better people, not just to try harder, to work harder, to not have the best boundary markers, not to have the best well-behaved kids, not to sin the least as a church, not to have the best worship experience. Jesus' invitation to us is to come to him, to depend on him, to learn from him, to find rest in him. And one of the greatest gifts Jesus has ever given us in learning more about him, other than himself, is the Christian community in which he has placed us in. In response to Jesus' work on the cross, in response to his invitation to learn from him and rest, we enter into the work of building and experiencing life-giving Christian community. And when we see it as that, it's hardly even, it can hardly be called work. And this is the heartbeat of what we challenged the young people here at Hillside and the young people in the Greater Grand Rapids area to this last weekend at our winter retreat. We focus we encourage them to stop being so concerned with the boundary markers, stop being so concerned with the things that make us different, and be more concerned with building and entering into life-giving, genuine Christian community. How do we do this? Now, that could be a whole series in and of itself. We're going to try and keep it as short as possible. Um, three things, and this is by no means an exhaustive list, list. There's much, much more that we can do, but I think these three things are at the very least a good start. We talked about being present in the moment. We talked about speaking life to one another, and we talked about being vulnerable and being real. First one, which is being present in the moment. Um, Sherry Turkle writes this book called Alone Together, why we expect more from technology and less from each other. And she talks about um, how technology today has made us more connected than we've ever been before, but paradoxically and ironically, we feel more alone than we ever have in a very long time. She talks about places that used to be community places like um, bus stations, airports, um, barbershops, places that the line grocery store, places that you would usually talk with people have now just become places of social collection, places where we just show up and we're connected somewhere else. We're not connecting with each other. We're connecting with other people and we're being somewhere else. Um, She talks about how we live in a culture where it is hard so, so hard to be present with one another because so many things vie for our attention. So many things tempt us to be somewhere else. Uh, Too often we can sit in a room together. Too often we can be having lunch with one another. Too often we can be looking someone in the face and start connecting somewhere else. We can, we can signal our absence with a quick look down at our cell phone, and, we, and all of a sudden the connection can be broken. I can't tell you how many times my wife and I have been on date night, and... We desire to connect with one another. We desire to strengthen our marriage. We desire to have a fun time alone together. And we're and right across the table from each other, I can't tell you how many times we've pulled out our phones, checked emails, looked at Instagram, looked at Facebook, not even connecting with people, literally just window, window shopping, just gazing into other people's lives when we have someone right across the table from us to connect with. She talks about how we're always taking pictures and uploading them, and we're sharing these screen-sized moments with people that aren't anywhere near us while we're just rejecting the life-sized moment that's happening right in front of us with the people that we get to share it with. She talks about this culture shift that's taken, that, that, that's, that's happened where, in our reverence for conversation with one another, how it's completely acceptable and we see nothing wrong these days with literally looking someone in the face and telling them to stop speaking so that we can attend to an important phone call or an important text. Um, And for me, that seems very normal. Apparently, that's not how it used to be. Um, And what we've done in doing that and accepting that shift is communicate to the person that we're with that you're less important somehow or you're not really that important compared to what I have to take care of somewhere else. She, talks about, she shares these heartbreaking stories of this teenage boy who used to really love coming home and interrupting dad while he was reading his book and just talk about life. But he said, now I can't because the power of the Blackberry has usurped my common stories of school and life and friends. I can't interrupt work. I used to be able to interrupt his story. I can't interrupt work now. She shares this heartbreaking story of this girl who goes to gymnastics. And she, when she gets off after practice, She talked about how that 15 minutes from gymnastics to home was the best 15 minutes of her day because she got to share stories with her mom. But now she's connected to the Bluetooth in the car. She's writing emails. She's texting, which is very dangerous. Um, But she no longer gets to connect with mom, and she goes to her room, and they live separate lives. Building genuine, life-giving Christian community starts with this skill that sometimes we forget, which is just being present in the moment with one another to not let our anxiety of elsewhere or someone else take over. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer is this German theologian, brilliant. He talks about uh, Christian community, and he talks about what our services are to one another. And this is what he says. He says, The first service that one owes to others in the fellowship consists in listening to them. Just as love to God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love for the brethren is learning to listen to them. It is God's love for us that he not only gives us his word, but he lends us his ear. God listens to us and we get life. So Bonhoeffer says we need to listen to learn to each other so we can impart life. It's hard, if not entirely possible, to to listen to someone, to lend them your ear if you're not present with them. The reality is we can't do the other things in community. We can't speak life to one another. We can't be vulnerable and real if we communicate that we're not there with our posture, if we're not present with one another. So this is our, our first work. This is our foundation, our building block of community. At coffee with a friend, at the dinner table with your family, when you have a friend over for company, be present in that moment alone. I've been doing this recently. I've been trying to take my phone whenever we go over to someone's house and leave it in my car. And just the, the, the experiences I've got to have, the anxiety that's been released, has just been so life giving. So I, I, I would challenge you be present in the moments that you're in. Second thing is speaking life to one another. Um, I don't know where we picked up this idea, and I am just as guilty of it. Literally, just this morning, last night, every single stinking day of my life, I- I'm guilty of this. But somewhere along the way, in some way, shape, or form, we have co- convinced ourselves that sarcasm is the lost sixth love language. Of our communities with one another, we, we've convinced ourselves of that, and we've we've somehow fooled ourselves into thinking that giving one another a hard time, poking fun at, and jabbing is actually it communicates more love and communicates more encouragement than the good thoughts that we have with one another. Um, we often don't think about the power of our tongue, the power of our words, um, but we often say and convince ourselves that hey, that's just how I show that person I love them. If I'm not making fun of you, that's when you should be worried. And what I want to say, I I don't want to doubt that. I don't want to discount that because the reality is, is that, again, I'm guilty of this. The people that I love the most, for some reason, those are the people I tend to give the hardest time. Those are the people I tend to make fun of the most. But what I really want us as a community, and as a church, to think about is to challenge ourselves. And when we say those things, to say, Really? Is that really the best way that I can communicate to someone that I love them, that I care about them, that I think so highly of them? Really, if I'm not making fun of someone, is that how I, that's when they need to be worried? I think that, that I, I just really, is that the best way to speak encouraging, life-giving words to one another? And again, I, I'm, I'm the chiefest of sinners in this. I do this all the time, but I, it, we really need to challenge ourselves and think if this is really the best way, because studies are, are pretty clear that negative comments, whether they're serious, whether they're sarcastic, whether the intention was good or bad, has a very lasting effect. The number... Always hear differently, but it's for one negative comment. There needs to be anywhere from 5 to 12 positive to forget the negative comment. Not to accept and soak in the positive comment, but to forget that the negative comment was even said. And the book of James has some very telling, very convicting words for us when it comes uh, to how we speak with one another. James 3.3, when we put bits into the mouth of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. That little piece of metal can turn such a powerful animal. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course on one's life on fire, and is is itself set on fire by hell. These are some strong words about the power of our tongue, the power of our words. Uh, it, it, It corrupts the whole body. That is is something I don't normally think about, but he continues to go on. He says all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. And I love this picture because I think it communicates this so well. No human being can tame the tongue. It is like a fist that comes right out of our mouth. It is an evil full of deadly poison. He says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. And with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. This should not be. We shouldn't at one moment be praising God while at the same time cursing our neighbor. Whether it's serious, whether it's sarcastic, whether our intentions are serious or harmful. And why is that? Because our words have legitimate ability to destroy, but they have really, ama- just how the, the tongue can corrupt, it can also bring great life. Proverbs 16.24 Pleasant words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Think about this. health to the body, well-being to our physical person are, are pleasant words. And we forfeit that sometimes. And this is why Paul encourages us in Ephesians 4.29 Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Does your, what I want to ask is, does your speech benefit those who listen? I know mine doesn't all the time. Does your speech, is it sweetness to people's souls? Is it health to their bodies? Or does your speech uh, make someone go to another community so that they can be convinced that that's not true of them? Um, Again, uh, this is something I struggle with daily, but I think it's so important. Speaking life takes a lot more work because tearing someone down, speaking words of destruction, all we have to do is look at someone for 10 seconds and watch them do one thing or say one thing, and we can just point and just, just attack. But speaking life requires, first off, being present, but it requires us paying attention to how God has gifted them, how God has blessed us through them. It takes a lot more time and effort, but it's so much more life-giving. We would be fooling ourselves if we said that sarcasm, poking fun at one another to show our love, makes us feel more loved than genuine encouragement. Um, (laughs) We we would rather hear good things about ourselves than fill-in-the-blank insult plus just kidding, or fill-in-the-blank insult plus you know I love you. And if that's what we would like more, if that's what we would like to see more in our lives, God calls us to love each other as we love ourselves, and that is, it's, that is why we, we need to. There's a very serious thing at stake here if we're not speaking life to one another. So if being present is the car that we get into towards community, okay, and uh, speaking life, encouraging words is like the gas that we put inside of, of the car to make it go, and the last thing, and it's without a doubt the hardest thing in building community, is being vulnerable and being real. Sticking with this car analogy, being vulnerable and being real, it's the fork in the road. If we take a left, it's to destruction and community breaks down. If we take a right, it, it community flourishes. Our ability to be vulnerable and real and our capacity to handle vulnerable and real people with gentleness, with love, with care, it either destroys or just completely flourishes the community that we've been building. And what do I mean by vulnerable? I think Adam and Eve is a good example. Adam and Eve, when they were in the garden, as they were originally created, were completely naked and without shame. And the reality is they were able to present themselves to one another without having to worry about how they presented themselves. And they did not care how the person who was seeing them perceived them. The only thing that they cared about was being in perfect fellowship with one another and how God viewed them. But just like us, sin, or just like Adam and Eve, sin, what it does is it makes us feel shameful. It makes us feel guilty. And the first thing we want to do is cover up who we are. We want to cover up the real version of ourselves to our neighbor. And we do this too. We put our fig leaves on and we try our hardest to not let our neighbor see the real version of us. We are terrified with our real self being seen by our neighbor. And we know why, too, though, because sometimes our neighbor disappoints. Sometimes our neighbor is just a flat-out jerk. Sometimes our neighbor sucks. And that's, that's the reality. Of it. Sometimes they really let us down, and they really, really hurt us. And we don't like being vulnerable. We don't like being real because we know that people can take our info, can take our vulnerability, our authenticity, and use it against us. They can use it as leverage. And if you've seen the Hunger Games, uh, Finnick O'Dare, he's one of the, he is the official dreamboat of the Hunger Games, right? He, I mean, the girls all love him. He, he is a victor. He's one of the youngest ones. And uh, after he becomes a victor, he gets sold into dishonorable work by the Capitol. He gets sold into male prostitution because he is such a hunk, right? And when he meets Katniss, he talks about what he accepts as payment. And I think it's so So telling for our fear when it comes to vulnerability. He calls money common. Money is one of the most worshipped gods in our culture. People give their lives to it. People kill for it. People lose their families over it. People give their whole lives to the pursuit of money. And Finnick says, "I haven't dealt in anything as common as money for years." And we think, "What in the world is he talking about?" But when he, he when he, when he. Tells about what he trades in, what he receives, we get it right away. And if you're like me, when you hear him say secrets, you think, oh my gosh, how many finnics do I have in my life? What are the secrets that I have? What are the secrets that people are going to tell? What are they going to think about me when they hear those secrets? How is my life going to be changed? You know what? I'm just going to close up. <laughs> I'm going I'm I'm to be a, a, a big wall and I'm going to make sure that no one gets out and be a fortress. And that's what happens because we know that knowledge is a powerful tool, but it's an equally powerful weapon. Uh, We're scared, but the reason we're scared is because we've been that neighbor that disappoints. I've been the jerk before. I've taken information that I know I shouldn't have shared and shared it with someone with the intent to hurt them. I've taken information and shared it with someone with the intention to gain power and control over a situation, with the intent to get revenge in some fashion. We don't like dealing in vulnerability or authenticity because our culture has shaped us to present our best self, to put on our best-looking fig leaf. And we do that but we do it at the cost of community. Um, we forfeit genuine Christian community when we don't allow ourselves to be seen, when we don't allow ourselves to be vulnerable, authentic, and real with one another. For genuine Christian community to function as it was designed, we need to be vulnerable so that our neighbor can it, our neighbor can enter into the work that they were designed for. Galatians 6, Galatians 6, 1 through 2. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, not judgmentally, not harshly, but watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. We cannot sh- carry one another's burdens. You reject your neighbor's option to carry your burden if the burden stays inside First Corinthians twelve twenty four to twenty six. God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. We can't rejoice. We can't rejoice to the extent of of overcoming suffering if we don't first let our sufferings be known. What we come to find out is that. Vulnerability is ultimately our gift to our community because in vulnerability, community takes shape and God's glory is so evident. When we're focused on being in the center, right? When we're focused on being on the outside, what literally happens is the X's separate. <laughs> we're more divided when we're, we're, we're concerned about being great and when we're concerned about being the best representation of ourselves. But when we just don't care about it, when we just live and own our weaknesses, we get closer to the center, than we've ever been. We get closer to the center. And in the center we experience Jesus. But here's the thing is a two-way street. People cannot walk into vulnerability safely unless it is a safe place. We can be present with one another. We can speak words of life to one another, but community breaks down and gets destroyed when we don't be vulnerable and real and it implodes. And shrapnel goes everywhere when we abuse people's vulnerability, when we abuse people's authenticity. Vulnerability is without a doubt the scariest thing we'll ever walk into, but it is the most transformative thing at work in our communities because in our weakness, God's power is made perfect. Treat vulnerable people with gentleness, with love, with humility, with grace, and expect the same, same thing from your community. In closing, I want us to return to our boundary markers. I said, I want us to flip the script. Let's not see these things as a means, okay? I want to replace those means with these building blocks we talked about this morning, okay? Uh, I, if, we're, if we are faithful, when we do these things faithfully, when we are present with one another, when we speak life, when we're vulnerable and real, what ends up happening is we become inspired to actually do these things. When we experience God through our neighbor, when we enter into and build genuine Christian community, we cannot help but want to go seek truth from God's word with one another. We cannot help to want to pray for our neighbor because we know that we want God to do a great work in their lives. When we do these things with each other, we cannot help but in an undignified fashion worship God because we're so thankful for our brothers and sisters. We're so thankful that we've got to experience this great gift that God has given us. Through our community, we experience Jesus. We take his yoke upon us and we learn from him and we experience him in such a radical, life-giving way that we can't help but respond with things that we initially thought were boundary markers, with things we initially thought were means. We flip the script. Be present with one another. Speak words of life and be vulnerable and treat vulnerable people well. You see, we challenged the young people here to this exact same thing this weekend. And I know this has been a little long, but it's hard to fit four talks into one. (laughs) And the single hardest part a high schooler will tell you, or anyone will tell you, is coming home from a retreat, the hardest thing in keeping momentum, the hardest thing in putting into action what you've heard, is the realization when you get home that I'm the only one that heard that. I'm the only one that got to hear that message, and I'm the only one that got challenged to that. No one else is going to get it. My family, my friends, no one. So what I want to do this morning is I want—I wonder if we as a church can communicate with our actions and our words in our community that this challenge to experience and to enter into genuine life-giving Christian community is not an exclusive challenge for the young people in this church. I wonder if we as a church can faithfully walk into this together as a community and be prepared to take it on? As a church, can we take Jesus' yoke upon ourselves and work together for what he has for us? And can we be life-giving in our Christian communities? Let's pray. Lord, I I thank you for this community that that you've placed me in. I thank you for these people. God, would you encourage us to build community? Would we not be so concerned with the things that separate us, but be so much more concerned and care about the things that that bring us together, that unite us? God, with your spirit and your spirit alone, would would we be encouraged? To be present in every moment, to speak life to the people that we love, and to be vulnerable and real while also treating people who are vulnerable and real with love and like you. And in that work, would our communities flourish? And would we get to experience one another in a way we never have, and experience you in a way that we never have, in your name we pray. Amen. If you'd like, to stand. I'll give you a parting word of blessing. <clears throat> the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. Would you guys go knowing that you're loved by God and would you guys go giving so much life to the communities that you're a part of? Have a great day. (laughs)